Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. The rapture has taken place. It means that we are now ruling and reigning with Christ in that marvelous spiritual kingdom, that new heaven, that new earth, and that new Jerusalem. The rapture is one of those subjects we often hear talked about and written about today. So many questions that people have about this topic. Fulfilled Dynamics presents the Covenant Eschatology Classic Series. Messages taken from the 1980s and 90s with speakers appearing on seminars about the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Today, listen as Jack C. Scott talks about the prophetic language and symbolism surrounding what many refer to as the rapture. This message was recorded live in Warren, Ohio in 1991. And now with this classic presentation, here's Jack Scott. I'm looking forward to this lecture in some way. I do believe we're going to have to deal with it with a biblical way because the real rapture that some believe did not take place and take me home so that I would not have to do this. Um, so we'll try to look at the text and see what it might be saying. I was just enthralled, though, by the comments that... Uh, Don Preston made about me, uh, when was it, uh, in his lecture uh, last night or this morning sometime, I, I was so shook by it I forgot, you know, he was talking about different effects that I've had on people, and, and the effect that I had on him was rather a strange one, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I ought to be flattered, I've, I've been told that i provoked people, and I've been told that I, I've made people angry, and, and I've been told that I've caused people joy and to think, but I've never been told I've made people sick. Uh, Said he's so excited to come hear me, went outside and deposited everything he had just tried to digest. I'm just thankful he didn't do that publicly and share it all with us. I, uh, um, <laughs> next year, I would settle if he would just get the chills or the shivers or something like that. I, you might pass that on to him, Jan. I, uh, <laughs> he's run out. I don't know if I made him sick again because I was going to speak. I don't see him here right now. <laughs> I'm going to get insecure about this. Turn with me, if you would, though, to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the text. Max jumped on me for not getting to my text. So I'm going to try to at least read this, and we'll see how much we can get to it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the text under consideration that we will be attempting to deal with and explain this afternoon is found in... Chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 13 through 18. Read with me if you would. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, suffice it to say that there are a lot of different understandings about this passage from the various types of futurist schools. I thought about giving a brief examination of each of those types of schools, of the uh, different millennial schools, of the pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation type theorists of when the rapture would take place. And, of course, there is the traditional amillennial school that believes all of this material is yet uh, at a future time when Jesus Christ, which is what I used to hold to and used to teach, and perhaps there are some here that still do and are here considering these things, that in the future Jesus Christ will come again with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet blowing of God, and he will come with the clouds, bringing the saints with him. The graves shall open up, the dead uh, shall rise out of those graves, the great judgment throne scene will take place, at which point we shall be ushered into eternity, either to our eternal reward or to our eternal punishment. But most of the people who understand this text in any way understand it in a futurist context, future from the time in which we live. Needless to say, I do not understand it in such a context anymore. I understand it in a realized context. It is a past context. This great lesson has been uh, realized. It has been accomplished, this great rapture scene, quote-unquote. And I think it's important that we at least challenge ourselves to consider that this may be the case, that it has already taken place. First of all, let me state emphatically. And I've, I've just got to throw this in, that I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the word rapture. I don't like it because it's not a biblical word. Of course, I'm guilty of using a lot of words that aren't biblical. I use the word eschatology, and I use the word theology, and I use all of these other ologies, and those really aren't biblical words. But it comes from my background of being so uh, diametrically opposed to the premillennial doctrine of the rapture that I find it extremely uncomfortable. Of course... We sing songs and hymns that have the term rapture and the term, you know, that we sing with raptured praise and such things as that. It just simply means to be caught up in the spirit of things. And of course, that's what the rapture concept is. And the text talks about being caught up. While this may be a bad word, at least in my connotation, it describes an idea and a great event that the Bible describes as being very important to our salvation and to our fulfilled, realized messianic expectations. So we want to look at this idea. Our lesson today, however, is not intended to answer all questions relative to this great passage, mainly because I don't have them all. And I'm sure that shocks some of you, probably not many, but I'm sure that might. I don't have all of the answers, and I don't mean to be up here uh, as an expert giving you all the answers. I read the definition of expert once, and I'm not sure I want to be one. You know, I think we've all heard it, that an X is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So I'm not, I'm not really all that thrilled about being an expert of most anything, but especially this. There are too many grand ideas involved in learning this text and this material for us to want to be experts. Well, I want to continue to grow, and I want to continue to learn. To say, however, that I don't have all of the answers, which I don't, and that we don't have all of the answers, which probably none of us do at this time, is not to say that we do not have such clearly defined biblical guidelines and parameters that we cannot know in a rock-solid way the time frame and the overall thesis of what this subject matter is and what it's dealing with and when it would be applied and when it would be realized. I believe we do. To say that we have an overall framework is not to say that we have all the answers, but to say that we don't have all the answers does not say that we don't have the framework to deal with, because we do. The last day's period of time, as so many different uh, speakers have uh, so capably expounded upon in this series, 
is rock solid in the Bible. And that last day's period of time is the period of time in which all of these great ideas and great uh, concepts of New Testament doctrine are being fulfilled and are being realized. First of all, I'd like to cover some foundational hermeneutical rules. I'd like you to know what I believe to be the proper way to study, but if you don't think it's the proper way, I would at least like you to know the rules that guide my study because that's important. I want you to know how I've reached these conclusions that I've reached. The first foundational hermeneutical rule that I think is important in understanding this text as well as any others that we may study in the realm of eschatology is that the Bible uses language in a consistent way. Now, the great thing about that rule is nobody's going to argue with me because I haven't seen a hermeneutical textbook that doesn't say something to that effect. The Bible uses language in a consistent way. We know that. The second rule, foundational hermeneutical rule, and by the way, if you don't know, hermeneutics, that's another one of those words that's not in the Bible, hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation, the process of studying the Bible. But number two, there are different genres or types of language, patterns of language in the Bible. We need to know that. Some people make great mistakes in studying eschatology because they don't understand that the Bible uses language consistently, but sometimes in a different way. Now, does that sound contradictory? Let me explain what I mean. The Bible, when the Bible is speaking in historical sections of Scripture, uses language in a consistent way. But that consistent usage of language in historical writings is somewhat different than the consistent use of language in poetical sections of the Bible or in prophetic sections of the Bible. When we get to Genesis chapter 5, where we're told that Noah begot Seth and Seth begot so-and-so uh, and so-and-so -and -so begot so-and-so and they lived so many hundreds of years and begot sons and daughters and so on and so forth, when we're dealing with the first 17 books of the Bible, the law and the 12 books of history, five books of law and the 12 books of history, we are dealing for the most part with what is called historical material. Now, the reason it's called historical material is because in those 17 books, God is charting history, and he is wanting to give us the logical procession of events from the beginning of creation to the fall of man on up and through the calling of the Israelite nation, bringing them out of Egyptian captivity, the giving of the law, and all that would happen up to that period of time. By the time we get up to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we have covered the totality of Old Testament history that is covered by the written books of the Old Testament. Then we go into five what's called wisdom literature books or poetic books. Then we go into five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. Whether you like those terms or not, that's the way we've always remembered it. The 512-5512 method. That's what we teach to the kids. And those prophetic books go back and fit into that historical section as commentary of what God would have the prophets to say to the people regarding good times and regarding bad times, regarding the laws of covenant, uh, the covenant of blessing and cursing that Don expounded for us earlier on today. Now, in those sections, there is historical material. God wants us to know a detailed history. But when we get into the poetic sections, such as the book of Proverbs or the book of Psalms, the Bible starts using language differently. For instance, in Psalm the 55th chapter, we have a very different usage of language. In Psalm 51, verse 5, Paul, or the David, in agonizing of his sin that he had uh, committed with the uh, adultery of Bathsheba, when Nathan confronted him with his guilt and said, Thou art the man, David penned the 51st Psalm. And in his anguish of... 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Part, I believe, he used what's known as poetic hyperbole. Sounds impressive, but that just simply means he exaggerated the case for emphasis. Now, if you pick up a book of poetry today in our language, you'll find exaggeration for emphasis. When he said, surely in sin my mother conceived me, he wasn't saying what our Calvinist friends and neighbors would have him to say, that he was born a sinner. As the NIV has falsely translated, that's not what he's saying. David was agonizing with his guilt, and he said, it is as if I have been born in sin, enveloped in sin, always around sin. I can't get away from it. In chapter 58, verse 3, he's agonizing over the enemies of God. He says they have been estranged from the womb. They go forth from birth, speaking lies. Now, who goes forth from birth, speaking lies? Nobody does. He's trying to exaggerate the case. These enemies are so cruel, they're so evil, it is as if they have been speaking lies from birth. It's exaggerated to get a great lesson. Then we get into prophetic material. And when we get into prophetic material, one of the cardinal aspects of prophetic language is what's known as apocalyptic symbolism. We've got to be very cautious in trying to literalize prophetic material. Prophetic material is one of the more challenging because it has both literal, it has some poetic, but it has a good deal of apocalyptic symbolism. Symbols, metaphors, word pictures that are meant to give us a mental picture. We talk about a picture paints a thousand words. That's what a symbol is. An apocalyptic symbol is a word picture meant to explode in our mind an image of something. It's detail, it's glory, it's grandeur, it's evil, it's doom, it's destruction. Of course, we could cite so many different examples. Isaiah 19.1, God rides a swift cloud into Egypt. Nobody ever believed God rode a cloud into Egypt. We'll look more at that. But we do know that that was language describing Egypt will be doomed. Egypt's destruction will be complete. It will be final. It will be. Uh, Isaiah 34, Edom. The heavens and earth of Edom will be rolled up like a scroll. That didn't happen to Edom, but Edom was destroyed. Completely, thoroughly, judged, finally. So clearly... We need to understand there are different types of language. Third, language must be allowed its normal meaning and usage. That's another thing all the rule books will say. The question is, who determines normal? Far too often, the interpreters in their day and time have used their determination for what's normal. Folks, 20th century Americanized English isn't even like 16th century Elizabethan English, let alone like 1st century Greek and 2,000-year B.C. Jewish. Hebrew, it's not the same at all. We know that in our own culture today. You take a Chinese university student who has studied English for six years. They will speak better grammar than you or, is it I or me? <laughs> see, I didn't really know, but see, that fit in real well there. <laughs> they will speak better grammar than any of us. But you put them in downtown America, anywhere USA, and they won't be able to communicate with anybody. 
People run around saying things are cool and they think it's hot in Ohio. Why is he saying it's cool? It's humid, it's sticky, it is not cool here. We have colloquial ways of speaking. We have what we call just understood language that we grow up around and we pick that stuff up and you don't have to explain it to someone who's grown up with it. But you would to that Chinese university student. They wouldn't pick it up. They wouldn't understand. We did not grow up with Jewish apocalyptic symbolism. We've got to work hard at understanding this. And our background is not the background for the understanding of this. So yes, the Bible uses language in a consistent way, but it's the indigenous Jewish understanding both of time and of their usage of language and of that first century Koine Greek. It is the understanding of the time. Hand in hand with that prior rule, we need to establish precedent of usage. Now, what does that mean? That means there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the wisdom writer said, and that's the case with biblical material. Do we realize, uh, who was it, someone here, um, I, I believe it was someone here, said that the book of Revelation, it was Terry's, in Terry's lecture, he quoted one author that said, the book of Revelation is the most biblical book in the Bible because of its quotes. There are at least 300 plus allusions from Old Testament apocalyptic symbolism in the book of Revelation. Now, the somewhat wise person would say, aha, I need to go back and understand how the Old Testament used that terminology and those symbols, and that might help me understand how to apply it here. We've got to establish precedent of usage. Whenever we get into a section of Scripture, like ours today, where we find language that is being quoted almost verbatim from other sources used in the past, we would be wise to go back and find out how that language is employed, and it would be patently foolish and unwise not to do so and force a contrived explanation on that passage. So we want to establish how the Bible sets precedent of usage of language. And then finally, once precedence of usage has been established, if one intends on varying from the precedent, if we're going to go into 1 Thessalonians 4, for instance, and demand that that is a literal as opposed to a symbolic approach, as we're going to challenge ourselves to see, and if the precedence of usage has always been symbolic and we want a literal application, the only way we can justify that is by going into the text, finding compelling, overriding evidence from that context that demands we vary in how we approach it. That's the only logical thing to say. That or somebody else has to volunteer to stand up and say, I'm the inspired one who will tell you how to do this. We can't do that. Okay, foundational hermeneutical rule. Now, let's look at the biblical background for our text. Having read that Jesus is going to come with the clouds with the shout with the trumpet with the angels, those who are alive are going to be caught up together with him in the clouds. There we shall be forevermore. Comfort one another with these words. Let's look at the background of this context and see what it might be dealing with. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to look at the New Testament context first. No, I've changed my mind. Turn with me back to Zechariah. I'm going to use the Old Testament. <laughs> Actually, I just want to see how fast you are in flipping through those pages. Don brought up and very capably mentioned Zechariah chapter 10 and some of the comments that are made there. Now, let me just say, while we can't go through all of these sections and can't read several chapters on end, that would use up all of my time, which is rapidly going away, we need to understand that this is clearly understood by all as messianic prophetic sections of Scripture. 
Okay? In Zechariah, uh, 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 the 11th chapter, verse 10, he talks about his staff that he might break it. Then he talks about the 30 pieces of silver prophecy. Clearly, we understand that was a messianic prophecy. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, very important context. I want to read just a few of these verses. Zechariah 12:10. he says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced this is the key to understand Revelation 1-7. If you uh, have not read the article, you want to go back and pick up uh, Brother Don Preston's article in the Living Presence on Revelation 1-7, Every Eye Shall See Him. He did a good job uh, with this. But this is the foundation for the prophecy in, Zach, or, or in Revelation 1-7. Every eye shall see him, even those that pierced him. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. And it goes on and talks about that morning. But yet Jesus, in alluding to this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and following, says that on the day that he would come in judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70, every tribe would mourn. This is a Jewish prophecy. Did they mourn in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy? Yes, they did. Then also, in Revelation 1-7, at the same time that the tribes mourned in AD 70, every eye saw him, even they who pierced him. The people who pierced him wasn't the Roman soldier folks with the spear. That was the literal physical piercing, but the piercing was the piercing of the rejection of the Jewish nation. They are the ones that pierced him, and they were the ones who were going to mourn when they saw and were fully understood what they had done. In chapter 13, verse 7, I'm just hitting a couple of highlights here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's quoted in Matthew 26, I believe, relative to the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You don't have to take my word that these are messianic contexts. Take the inspired writer's word. Then over in chapter 14, the day of the Lord's coming. What's happening? Salvation is coming. The Jews have rejected me. They're going to see me even though that pierced me. Why? Because he's coming in judgment. That's what the day of the Lord is about. Now notice he says in verse 5, you're going to flee through the valleys and the mountains, so on and so forth. But down at the end of that verse, he says, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. Now, if we will allow the Bible to shed light on itself, to interpret itself, we will know when they saw him, even those who pierced him, every eye. Because Jesus said that they would mourn in Matthew 24 when they saw his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem and the Jewish system in A.D. 70. But at that same time, the prophet says, God is coming in judgment. He is bringing all the saints with him. That's a marvelous context. And then he goes down to verse 8 and he says, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. What a marvelous fulfillment or prophetic uh, picture of which Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth and the waters of life flowing forth from the new Jerusalem that God is dwelling in with his people. We weren't meant to have all of these similarities and not say, hmm... Something must be the same about these passages. These New Testament writers are quoting these Old Testament passages, quoting these Old Testament symbols, showing the work of Christ in the first century and the establishment of the kingdom to be the fulfillment of all of these things. Now turn with me, if you would, to Matthew. I promise we'll stay there this time. I would really like to go back and walk through Matthew. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I would like to begin with chapter 3, verses 2 through 12, of the baptism of the fire and of the Holy Spirit and what's going on there. We're going to go back in just a moment to Matthew 13, but I, I would like to walk through so many of these passages to show the development of this thought about the gathering and about the harvest, the gathering together in the Lord and what it's dealing with uh, in, in, in concept. But in Matthew chapter 24, let's pick up at verse 29. And again, as has been pointed out by so many, according to the traditional amillennial view of which most of us have come out of that background or part of that background, no one disputes that this is an A.D. 70 context. It's just not disputed. Verse 36 and on is the dispute, or at least in that general region, someplace at 35 or whatever. Beginning in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. There's Jesus' quote of Zechariah's prophecy. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now watch the symbols. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Mark's uh, gospel also in Mark chapter 13 verses 24 through 27 says the same thing. We have Jesus coming. He is coming with his saints. He is coming with the clouds. He is coming with the shout. He is coming with the angels. He is coming for judgment. Now hang on to that because I'm going to suggest to you that when we get back over and read 1 Thessalonians 4 in the rapture, there are some real strong similarities. As a matter of fact, we'll see that Paul is doing nothing but quoting what Jesus said. Now, that's going to be something that we're going to have to do some dealing with and, and understand some critical aspects of that material. Now, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13. I want us to see the concept of the gathering and the harvest. Matthew 24 actually probably should be read after Matthew 13 because it is Christ's own prophetic fulfillment of what he has prophesied in Matthew chapter 13 relative to the parable of the wheat and the tares. If you haven't read or listened to the tapes of Brother Doug King's lectures on Israel, uh, the future of Israel, back from the first seminar, I would encourage you to go back. I don't remember which tapes it's part of now, but he did a tremendous job challenging me on some new concepts of the wheat and the tares in that lecture uh, relative to the remnant concept that the tares are the, uh, the, tares are the Jews and the, the wheat is the remnant of that day and time. But I want us to just get the time frame of this. Beginning in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 13, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed uh, tares among the wheat and went his way. 
But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let uh, both grow together until the harvest. At the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Here is Christ's judgment and gathering. He's foretelling this judgment and gathering. Now, I believe strongly that this is an AD 70 context, and we're going to see why as we look at the explanation that Jesus gives for this. Beginning in verse 36, they want explanation for the parable of the tares. They saw this was important material, and they wanted explanation for it. In verse 37, Jesus answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked ones. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those that practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun. Don did a good job bringing out that aspect of the righteous shining forth in the kingdom. The righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He has ears to hear. Let him hear. We cannot fail to see the background of what Jesus is talking about. In the time that he was establishing his kingdom, sowing the seeds of his kingdom, there was going to be a period at which the tares were competing with the wheat. Now, my father told me back when he was a young child in southeastern Missouri hoeing corn that there was a thing called Johnson grass. I've seen Johnson grass, but he said when corn starts to come up and sprout, he said it looks a whole lot like Johnson grass. And he said it's really tough when you're hoeing corn to know whether or not you're hoeing the corn or the Johnson grass. For a period of time, in this first 40 years, there was going to be a distinct time frame in which the Jews were going to appear to be like the sons of the kingdom. They were going to be in competition. But Jesus makes it clear that at the end of this age, and we can answer that by saying who was speaking, to whom was he speaking, and when was he speaking. Jesus is speaking to the Jews during the Mosaic age. He said, at the end of this age, I will do what? I will send out my angels for the harvest. They will gather, they will separate, they will judge and destroy those who are the enemies of righteousness. They will uh, 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 plant those who are the sons of righteousness and they will shine forth in the kingdom of the sun. This is the gathering background for the text that we are examining. Mark has so many wonderful rich background materials that we could look at, but I'm going to have to move on. I'm going to try to get to the main part of it, so I'm going to skip a good deal of my outline here. I hope that you'll forgive me for that. Luke has some tremendously helpful material. John has some helpful material. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his apostles and for all those who would be disciples based upon their word. And he makes it very clear that they were not of that world. They had been taken out of that world and given to him. They didn't cease existing in the physical planet. And on the physical planet, they had been taken out of that world of the old covenant age, given to Christ to establish his new world. They were given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. They would use those keys to unlock the kingdom, the rule, and the reign of God in the new covenant Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, unto all those who would be obedient, as Brother King pointed out so capably. The world that they were part of, 
was the new heaven and earth of righteousness and eternal life. That's the new heaven and earth of 2 Peter, the third chapter, wherein righteousness dwells. That's the new heaven and earth that would come when the old heaven and earth was shaken and removed so that that one that could not be shaken would supplant it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. It is the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth coming down out of heaven from God to be with men. Revelation 21, verses 1 and following, described as the lamb, the bride's wife. We know who that is. It's the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Very, very important stuff. It's also the new world of eternal life that's in the presence of God. In John chapter 14, I want to get this passage in because it's going to be important when we get to some of our material in 1 Thessalonians 4, if we happen to get to that. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm coming again. We're all familiar with verses 1 through 6. Jesus is going to go away. He's going to prepare a house or a place in the Father's house. In my Father's house literally are many rooms or are many dwelling places. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself. I have a fun time asking people where heaven is. We think of Jesus going to heaven as if he's going to a place. I'm going to California. Somebody find heaven for me on the atlas somewhere. Heaven is not a place. It is not defined and restrained by geographic boundaries. Jesus was going to the presence of God. He was going to be with the Father. And there he would prepare a place for us like that, a place with the Father. And he was going to come again as soon as it was prepared and bring us unto him that where he is, there he may be also. But we cannot understand this passage unless we understand verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And what's going to happen? And my Father will love him, and we, me and the Father, we will come to him and make our home with him. There's the understanding of the going away and the coming again of Jesus. When God would come, or when Jesus would come again, Jesus made very clear, I'm not coming alone. Next time, I am bringing the Father back with me. Now, that is the exact interpretation, biblically, of 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. When Jesus turns the kingdom back over to the Father, through His age-ending reign, He removed the barrier of sin death, of spiritual death, and reinstituted us back into a righteous relationship with God in His presence, that we might enter into the holiest, the most holy place with boldness, being in the actual throne room of God. In fact, God comes and makes his home in our life. That's how I can pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, because I'm always in the presence of the Father in Christ. We need to see the beauties of these concepts and of these passages. Oh, the linguistic background. We need to understand this comparative biblical terminology concept. I'm going to just mention some passages and hope that you'll study them. How much time do I have left? Okay. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 4. Um, Isaiah 19, 1. Psalm 104, verse 3. Psalm 27, verse 13. Amos 2, 2. Nehemiah, uh, or ne- excuse me, Nehemiah. <laughs> Nahum chapter 2, uh, or chapter 1, verse 2 and following are all passages that begin to show the linguistic backgrounds of the usage of this language in our text. This is not the first time we read this material in 1 Thessalonians 4, is what I'm saying. And if we are going to understand the precedence of usage, 
We'll go back and compare and we will see the concept of the coming and the clouds and all of these great symbols are figurative. The New Testament, Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 2 Peter 3, Hebrews 12, Revelation 21 and 22. The facts demanded by this evidence is that the precedent for this language is figurative. The context of 1 Thessalonians 4, as we'll see in just a moment, has no compelling evidence for a literal application. If you know of some, I'd like to see it, please, honestly. It is clearly the fulfillment of Christ's own prophecies of the change from the Old to the New Covenant as he foretold in Matthew 24. Would somebody please tell me, therefore, why Paul, in using and quoting the identical language of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, as Jesus himself gave in Matthew 24, verses 30-31, why Paul, if he intended for us to understand that language in a way totally foreign to the usage of Jesus and to the usage and precedent of all Old Testament prophetical material, why Paul didn't at least give us a hint that he was changing that kind of an application. In 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, verses 10 and 12, 10 minutes. In 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 10 and 12, Paul makes it very clear, even on matters that Jesus and he agreed upon. This is what I say to you as an inspired apostle, but this is what Jesus said relative to matters of, of marriage. Paul and Jesus weren't disagreeing, but he wanted there to be no confusion. Jesus didn't make specific comment about these particular questions you're asking me about marriage relationships, but I'll give you my answer as an inspired apostle. But regarding the overall view of marriage, Jesus did give it. And Paul is so clear that there is no confusion between what he gives and what Jesus gives. Now, it stands to reason, therefore, if Paul were going to quote the very words of Jesus, use the very signs, claim the very symbols, and give a totally different and variant application to those things, he would give us a hint that he's doing that. He'd come out and tell us if he really wanted to. And he really knew that that's what he was doing, but I don't think that's what Paul was doing at all. Time considerations from the text. We need to see clearly that this was in their day. The whole context of this epistle is addressed to the Thessalonians who were confused as to the status of the dead ones at the parousia of Christ, which is everywhere taught to be an imminent coming in parousia. The editorial we argument will not work, as some are trying to use. Paul expected in the lifetime of himself if he lived a normal lifetime and in the lifetime of these people who were undergoing persecution, that the parousia of Christ would come and deliver them. He is answering their confusions and questions, but he continues with this imminent expectation. The book's context demands fulfillment in their lifetime. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 19, and into chapter 3, Paul is going to send Timothy. He's going to send Timothy to encourage them and to build them up in the faith so that his work among them is not vain. But in chapter 3, in chapter 3, let's get back over there, we see what he was concerned about, what he wanted to be finished in their lives. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your faith and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, if they had completed, fulfilled salvation at that day and time, what was lacking in their faith? When you go over and you read 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to mention that I wanted to read it, but I can't. 1 Peter 1, verses 5 through 9, what was lacking in their faith that would be perfected at the, res or at the, uh, the presentation and the revealing of Jesus Christ at his coming was the salvation of your souls. He said in 1 Peter 1, 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Their completed salvation was what was lacking in that day and time. Do a comparison of chapter 4, verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians through chapter 5, verse 6 with 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 8. 2 Thessalonians 2. It shows that they were enduring persecution which was about to increase. It did not concern universal destruction. Paul's exhortation is imminent retribution to the enemies of God's people and vindication for the saints. Would it not, therefore, as Don asked in his illustration last night, rather prove to be a colossal discouragement for God to put off that coming for some 2,000 years when it was relative to their particular persecution? In chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the day was no surprise to them. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. They what? You know perfectly. You know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. For when they say, watch the, watch the uh, pronoun usage here. For when they say peace and safety, that's what the mockers were saying in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Everything's the same since the beginning. We're safe. Temple's safe. Jerusalem's safe. Safety. Peace and safety. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. If that first generation did not know about this day clearly enough to see the signs of its impending coming, we're going to have to have somebody inspired come into the terminal generation, whenever that might be, to give us those signs so that we might know. They did know. They did understand. Why? Jesus told them in Matthew 24 when you see all these things. Know that the end is near. They knew about the signs of that day. The day was no surprise to them. How? Jesus warned them. 2 Peter 3, 3, Peter also warned them. Compare Jude 14 and following. Jude quotes the very warning that Peter gives and says in his day. Those people were alive and worked. Those mockers were at work in that day and time. The judgment did not apply to them except in the aspect of vindication. If it is yet future, we must not expect another act of miraculous intervention in that terminal generation. We must expect another act of miraculous intervention in that terminal generation. Consideration of their enemies. I can only mention this. Who are the enemies that are being judged? Go back to Acts chapter 17 and you'll read that the enemies of the Thessalonians were the Jews. The Judaizers were their enemies. Now, since Paul quotes the language of Matthew chapter 24, which is Christ's judgment, coming judgment against the Judaizers, against that nation, against that system, he quotes those very signs, those very symbols, the words of Christ, and since the Thessalonians' enemies are the same enemies that Christ is judging, doesn't it stand to reason that he would apply that language in the same way or that you would have had you been in Thessalonica in that day and time? I believe you would have. Examination of the text in all of about three and a half minutes. Verse 13, who are those who had fallen asleep? This is one of those questions I'm not sure of. It could be that they had been their own departed loved ones and they were concerned about what would happen to them. Or it could be that they were thinking about the dead of the Jews. And as the Romans and the Corinthians who were attempting to have their salvation apart from Israel, Romans 11 and 1 Corinthians 15, were trying to do, and Paul is arguing if you have salvation apart from Israel, the dead of Israel, you have no hope, Perhaps those at Thessalonica, because they were being persecuted by the Jews, were also trying to reject the Jews. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are dead, those who have fallen asleep. He said, they will come unless you have no hope as others who hold that same idea and concept. Their hope was tied to the Jews. It's possible either way. I'm not 
firm on that yet. I'm not convinced. Verse 14, God will bring with him. Who's going to come? God. Now, you haven't heard a traditional eschatological explanation of this passage that ever included God coming. You've heard Christ coming, but not God. God is going to come. That answers to Roman, or John, the 14th chapter, verse 23. He is going to come, and he is going to bring with him the saints. They are not going to be left behind. They are going to share in all the blessings of that kingdom. I wanted to get into Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 15, the context of Ephesians 3, 1 through uh, the end of the chapter, the whole third chapter, I want to mention just one thing. Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, that Jew and Gentile would be brought together in one new man in the church, and he talks about the essentiality of the church, that the church, and it's a shame some would disparage the concept of church, the church is the manifestation of the completion of the plan. Notice, in verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church is essential. When God would bring with him all of the saints, we're told in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, both those who are in heaven and those on earth would be made one spiritual family. That's the revelation of the mystery. It's also the meaning of the concept of the rapture. In verse 15, 1 Thessalonians, I think I'm just about out of time and they're going to pull the trap door. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. The change was going to involve both those who had passed and those who were still alive. I can't say any more about that. I'd love to. The imagery, I wanted to get into the imagery so bad. Go back and look at the trumpets. Go back to Numbers 10. The great blowing of the trumpet sounded the movement of the camp of God's people. It called them to the temple, to the tabernacle. It directed their movements. It cried out in their victories. The trumpet is that symbol. Follow it through the prophetic material. The clouds. The clouds provided protection, care. The clouds were always a sign of God's judgment. Therefore, what does it mean when the great final trumpet would blow? 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 52 and following, the great trumpet would be sounded when death would be conquered. Death would be conquered when the law would be conquered. If death has not been conquered, the law is still in effect today. We need to see that we are still under the law. They would be caught up together with him in the clouds to be forevermore, ruling and reigning with him, joined in fellow heirs, Romans 8, 17 and 18. William will talk more about that, I'm sure. The rapture has taken place. It means that we are now ruling and reigning with Christ in that marvelous spiritual kingdom, that new heaven and that new earth and that new Jerusalem. I can only encourage you to go on and continue studying because there is so much more that we didn't have the time to see. But see the biblical framework and see the harmony of the text with all else it says. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Covenant Eschatology Classic Series. Messages from speakers such as Don Preston, Max King, William Bell, Jack Scott, Larry Siegel, and many others. For more information about Covenant Eschatology, visit FulfilledDynamics.com. To order books, videos, and other teaching materials, visit Eschatology.org. Join us again next time for more of the Covenant Eschatology Classic Series. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 